This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, my name is Joe Briley. I'm Director of Bioethics at Great Ormond Street Paediatric Bioethics Centre in London. I'm just introducing the next in our Paediatric Bioethics podcast series. And the reason to have a little discussion before is, I I hope you enjoyed it. It's a really good podcast on the subject of moral injury uh, with one of my colleagues, Anne McNitham, who's done a lot of work to try and combat that in healthcare professionals. And following the recent pandemic, Obviously, that's been a quite a hot topic in medical ethics. And some of the descriptions we use during the podcast, I think, are, are really taking you into the ICU during that first wave of the pandemic. And you will hear what it was like to care for multiple patients with very limited staff, particularly ICU nurses. Some of the descriptions may be distressing for those who have either had loved ones who have died during the pandemic in ICU or people have been very sick. So I just wanted to warn you that some of the descriptions are are fairly stark, but I think it's vital to understand some of the journey that the healthcare professionals have been on during the pandemic and some of the things we're trying to put in place to try and help them carry on caring for patients in the future. Thank you. Good afternoon, Anne. Good afternoon, Jill. It's it's great to have you on the podcast. And uh, I guess we can start off by maybe having you explain a little bit about yourself and how your interest in ethics started. So I am a paediatric nurse. I've been nursing now for over 30 years. Primarily, I guess my background is cardiac intensive care. I'm currently one of the matrons within our heart and lung division at Great Ormond Street. And I guess my interest in ethics really developed over time where more and more frequently we were looking after patients where we were pushing back the boundaries of what we could do and what we couldn't do. And really what I was seeing was that the nursing staff in particular, but also the junior medical staff, the physios, were struggling to have their voices heard in terms of raising questions and really when it came time to looking at doing advanced study, I felt I would like to do something that would help the staff and myself be able to articulate maybe a bit better for our patients and to fully participate in conversations around ethical issues. So that's when I went and did my master's in ethics and law. And really it was to to try and empower staff and to, to give them the confidence that you don't need to be an old grey haired bearded man in order to have a voice and an opinion and to speak for your patients. Cool. And that's very powerful stuff. Thank you. You can hear that, you know, the voice of advocacy, but also experience and how I, I would certainly echo what you're saying that in the not probably that distant past, the way people talked about clinical medicine and made difficult decisions was very much an old traditional medical model and things have developed. But I, I guess some of the things that come from what you've talked about then and which I'm, I'm really you know, looking forward to talking with you about today are the kind of the, the issues we talk about where difficult ethical things are happening. And for one reason or another, people in the team 
whether they feel disempowered, not able to speak. And this would equally apply to parents occasionally and children, I guess, about that idea of moral injury where you kind of are are slightly maybe damaged by having to look after a situation where you feel you don't have a voice or things are going in a different direction than you perceive might be right. And I guess it's a really challenging, complex area. Would you take us into that, please? Yeah, I think the concept of moral distress has been around since the 80s and very much had its kind of background in in nursing, where a gentleman called Andrew Jamieson, he kind of coined that phrase, having talked to his nursing students and listening to their personal stories of their experiences of providing care, where often the, the nursing staff would be questioning the the futility of the journey that the patient was being taken on, and they all were describing very similar feelings of anger, frustration, feeling powerless, and also feeling very guilty because they were in a position where they had to deliver care without, against what they felt was their own kind of personal and professional values. And this over time became an injury for them in terms of their their increasing feelings of frustration, their increasing anger, and and also this feeling that they were colluding in, in creating suffering for their patients, which is not what nursing staff went into the job for. I think it's interesting that the story of moral distress and moral injury is, is taking legs now that it's now no longer just the realm of nursing and more and more professions are acknowledging this this is a something that their staff are experiencing and it's across the board from medical staff allied health professionals but even extending out into social work veterinarians and the military so it's it's certainly becoming more and more recognized over the last kind of 40 years so, and I think that's extremely interesting in terms of how the initial development might have been in nursing, but the recognition that this can happen a lot throughout healthcare. But I, I guess there's two there's two challenges that come back to that, and just talking about the existence of moral distress and, and moral injury. And one is the idea that it's like it assumes a disempowered role of the individual. And I know there's quite a few authors in nursing feel that it minimises the ability of the nurse to control his or her environment to some extent. I guess that's one challenge. Any any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think I think that very much historically is where that that's been based, and I think it's also been why it probably hasn't been given the sort of recognition for the impact that it could have done because it's seen as being, I think, slightly fluffy and slightly female, and you know, it it's not based on kind of hard evidence, if you like. But I think the mm. the the role of nursing and nurses over the last 40 years has very much changed. I think we've gone Mm, from being passive participants in what's going on to being, you know, very experienced, highly trained, often with advanced degrees and PhDs and, you know, working at a much more autonomous level, participating and expecting to participate in the sort of decisions that are being made and working much more collaboratively with our medical colleagues. And I think also, interestingly, the the role of the doctor has changed over this period of time from it being very patriarchal to, you know, a decision made by a doctor would never in the past have been challenged. Whereas now we have, certainly in the world of paediatrics, we have expert 
parents who have access to information that technology can provide them so they can access experts in any part of the world at any time of the day and night and they are challenging decisions that are being made by the medical teams and are not so willing to accept what is the perceived wisdom of the treating teams and I think that is a real challenge for our medical colleagues and I think we're more and more find ourselves forced into positions by external forces of having to do things that we don't necessarily agree with Mm. and I think these are two very big changes in in the last kind of 40 years. Yeah, completely echo that. I, I guess the second challenge you often hear, and this is one that comes from some of my more academic colleagues, they all say, well, it's just it's just a hard day. There's no moral component to this at all. It's just saying that life's hard, the job's got harder. What What's the moral injury side to this? And could, could you explore that a little bit? Because I think that's a really interesting dynamic to this. Yeah, I think some of the things that we have to do, and I think it has been really quite clearly defined for us in a lot of ways by the pandemic and the situation that we found ourselves in, where we're being forced into a situation which is outworth all of our experiences and we're very much dealing with it as a crisis situation. But it is challenging what we perceive as being the right thing to do and having to alter the standards of care and our normal processes to a crisis situation and I think it kind of shines a light on some of the dilemmas which cause damage to our staff. Yeah coming on to the pandemic I mean that's really pertinent what you're saying and I guess in terms of the ability of healthcare professionals to deliver the the best care they want to deliver has been hugely compromised. I mean I personal experience of working with ICU nurses who normally it's one-to-one care, they're meticulous about every aspect of their patient's journey. And then all of a sudden it's one trained ICU nurse to six patients even more with maybe medical students or lab staff providing lots of the other treatment and care and doing an amazing job. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's been tremendous how people have stepped up. But I, talking to my colleagues who were bedside ICU nurses I, I think you know that's to me was very persuasive that the that there's something damaging in not being able to do the job that you want to do for your patient whatever the constraints and I think the pandemic has highlighted that hugely certainly for me working in that environment and any thoughts about that yes I mean I absolutely agree and I think it's 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 affected every aspect of what we do within healthcare as as it's affected every aspect of our lives outside of healthcare and that's maybe part of the reasons that we've had you know that we that it's become so evident that you can't leave the the kind of issues that you have at work at work you everything outside of work is so abnormal as well you know I think the even if we take something like which should be really simple but things like the visiting policies for hospital patients and the fact that you know the adults going into hospital went in on their own and for some periods of time they died with just 
the, the the team caring for them without loved ones at all. You know, that changed as the, the pandemic went on. But the impact of this on staff is hugely significant. Our usual standards of care would be to, to embrace the entire family and to support them, and none of that could happen. And also there was absolutely no time to for staff to to regroup their their heads around what had happened, patient turnover as one patient died, another one who's desperately in need of that bed space and their nursing and and medical skills. So even the care after death was not what we would normally deliver, and that is incredibly distressing for staff because it's something that we know is the last thing that we can do for somebody and it's something that we all take pride in and we want to desperately do well because we're aware that if we don't do the end of life well we're aware of the impact that this has on the surviving family and you know the guilt that staff feel because they haven't been able to do end-of-life care in a way that they've been used to is very difficult to overcome because you can't your, your logical side of you knows that the needs of the living are completely pressing and take precedence over the needs of the dead. However, they're also aware that the impact of that person's death and the way that it's come about will have a massive impact on the surviving family. And we haven't been able to do anything to mitigate that. I guess maybe just to move along, I guess two things. One, We'll come back to the role, I mean, the ethics team and you particularly in providing support for redeployed staff coming back, <clears throat> having looked after patients in the pandemic. But I wonder whether to start off with, we might start talking about your role in the ethics team at Great Ormond Street and how you've developed the, the techniques about combating moral injury. But but maybe even before that, we could ask you, what what's the downside? We haven't really thought about that. So, so what are the effects of moral injury on healthcare workers and, and why is that important for healthcare teams? So the impacts of it are really wide reaching and they're not always immediately apparent. I think there is, there is this concept of healthcare staff having this resilience of you, you deal with something and, and you put it away and you get on with the next task. But if we don't deal with it properly, this can leave a sort of residue which never resets back to zero. And so you just, over time, you just gradually build up. Some people just gradually build up a layer of an unhealthy residue which makes it harder and harder each time for them to get back on their feet, if you like. I think what's unclear to a lot of people and probably could be you know a nice investigation to do is to why some people are more resilient i think there are lots of different reasons for that but i don't think we have a completely clear picture of it but in terms of the the impact over time it can lead to an inability to sleep your morale just being generally lower an increase in sickness levels within staffing exhaustion this can all lead to increased errors, which can affect the patients. As it becomes more severe or as it gets you know, further down the line, it can lead to depression, staff feeling and becoming more and more isolated, unable to support their peers, unable to interact with their patients. They can choose not to look after patients. They can get to a stage where they deliver care in a way that is completely depersonalised, which again mm-hmm. is causing them more injury as well because they know that that's what's happening. More and more studies are showing the levels of PTSD within healthcare staff and recent studies have said, and I would say it's probably conservative, that it's sitting at 
about 50% of frontline staff will be exhibiting PTSD at the levels that military returning from combat will be sh- will be showing. And all of this can lead to deep depression, drug and alcohol abuse, self-harm, suicide, and, and, and also, you know, at the, at the end of it, staff being burnt out and just leaving the profession. You know, so it, the impact of it is significant across the board. And if you look at, you know, beyond the sort of personal costs to that member of staff, there is a complete correlation between the high levels of moral distress and poor quality of patient care, where they have more and more errors that are reaching these patients, depersonalisation of care, withdrawing staff being unwilling to face a challenging experience, you know, where maybe they've been put in that position before, maybe not wanting to look after a patient who's dying no. or not wanting to look after a family where they're maybe being a bit more challenging just because they don't have the space themselves to be able to deal with that. And then, you know, there is a, an, an impact on the society at large because if we look at the cost of training both doctors and nurses, it's not insignificant. No. And even you know, with that, you have you don't take newly qualified staff and put them into very challenging situations. They are they have to be grown on. The training is just the start of it. When they're qualified, they have a long way to go before they reach those levels of experience. And it's the experienced staff that we're losing. Be interesting to know what the effects of introducing lots of the more junior staff to quite difficult senior things they wouldn't normally see that early on in the pandemic will be and so so let's move on to what you've done with the ethics team at great ormond street and in the hospital would you expand on that a bit about the 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 kind of the workshops and support you've developed to help with moral distress yes so one of the thing the 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 key things is being able to, as part of the ethics committee, we can be made more aware of areas, if you like, hotspots within the hospital. So where things are potentially having a trigger for what could be a morally challenging event. So being aware of that and being able to proactively go in and offer support to staff and offer them a forum to have a discussion around what's going on. At a very basic level, I try and provide education which allows either for a sort of formal education where we have work through cases or ethical theories. I try and provide staff with a structure in which to approach an ethical dilemma so that they've got the confidence to be able to work through problems and be able to have that conversation either with their colleagues or in a larger multidisciplinary meeting so that they've got the confidence and feel that they can advocate and feel that their voices are heard. We run drop-in sessions so staff can come and that either works to Depending on what they want to do, we can talk about some challenging cases that they're actually experiencing at that moment in time. So it's quite live for them. Or if they haven't got anything that they've got going, we talk. sometimes we talk about some of the cases that are going through courts currently and we look at what's happening there or we talk about some of the, the kind of experiments and talk through the the ethical dilemmas so using like the famous violinist experiment or the trolley car experiment and try and get staff to work through those types Mm. of questions just really getting them to think and you know not necessarily 
react without thinking, if you like. I think the other thing that's been really powerful to do <clears throat> is to work with the pre-registration students mm. uh, and talk to them about some of the things that they are seeing and they definitely feel unable to kind of challenge or ask and actually being able to talk through situations with them has been really, really well received and really mm. quite powerful. I, I guess you're you're giving people an ethical language to enter into discussions about complex ethical issues in, in practice, which is we know that's supportive. That's going to be able to prevent some of the moral injuries that can occur, I guess, even by allowing people to have a discussion and work through their thinking about things with colleagues and that shared experience so i can certainly see how that would be helpful but i let's move along what's it been like with the pandemic where you're looking where as you say people might have huge experience of frequent deaths without the chance to process them and having to move on and look after the next patient because of the nature of huge numbers of patients with a a single diagnosis if you like how have you tailored your approach to the staff, which I think in terms of staff coming back from looking after adults during the pandemic, which thankfully hasn't affected children as badly, it certainly has affected them in other ways. But how have you looked at that? Because I guess, I mean, most people who probably aren't aware, our hospital largely sent ICU nurses and anaesthetists and intensivists, I think. How have you worked through that with people coming back? Yeah, I think it's been it's it's been really positive, I think. I think one of the the most powerful things for staff is to have the space to share mm. their stories and to have time that's I guess away from what they've been normally doing just to really think about things and form connections between what they're their normal day job has been and what this extraordinary time has thrown them into. And I think really from my experience, there's been two two very different challenges within this. I think the intensive care staff, a lot of particularly experienced intensive care staff, whether they were the doctors and nurses and anaesthetists, were very much aware of the positive impact that they were having in supporting mm. our, our colleagues in, in the adult world. And although they felt out of their depth, they were able to reflect on it and look at it in terms of, I suppose, small chunks, what they could do to help and what they could do in order to make things slightly better for our colleagues. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what the experience of those who didn't have the intensive care backgrounds, and we did send, there was quite a lot of our ward nurses went as well. And... I think their experience was probably quite different and was certainly coloured by a fear and anxiety that they were actually creating more of a burden for the intensive care trained staff and a fear that they would miss something. So they've gone from being, you know, experts in their own areas, whether it was the physios, whether it was the, the, the nursing staff, whether it was the doctors, they were experts in what they were doing. And then they were suddenly thrown back into being almost just task driven, having to respond and not necessarily being able to join the dots. And that fear of missing a deteriorating patient that they felt responsible for was immense. And I think that anxiety about not handing something over 
was that was a really recurrent theme that they they wouldn't hand something over that was important and they didn't know what they weren't you know they didn't know what they didn't know and that fear that they didn't know enough was was overwhelming for some of them and trying to bring them back into that kind of realizing that what they were doing was fulfilling the tasks which allowed the the staff who had the different skill sets to be able to provide different areas of care, which they wouldn't have been able to do had they not had those people there to turn their patients or yeah. to put Absolutely. the drugs up or to do the, Absolutely. you know, the eye care, yeah. the mouth care, that sort of thing. Yeah. It was, a, you know, trying to work them around to seeing that actually the role they played was, you know, as important in a lot of ways and it freed up the time for the intensive care staff to be able to take on eight patients, which they wouldn't have been able to do without the support of of those who didn't have the the same skill sets. I think that some of the things that the staff saw that they found very difficult and was one, one, one member of staff described a patient that she was looking after and she literally turned around to find someone suturing their eyelids shut and this has remained in her head as some being akin to watching something or living within a a horror film and even although she can rationalize and she knew it was to protect the eyes and that they had been unable to shut the eyes properly of this patient because of swelling and that it was being done to protect the vision this horror that she had was affecting her ability to sleep it would come up at different times you know she things would trigger for her and she would have almost panic reactions and working through and allowing her to the space and the time to talk about it and and really understand why it was being done and what you know the 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 impact of not doing that sort of thing uh, was you know it was very difficult for her but actually the space was very helpful for her I I guess that thinking about Probably a little bit more medical as well now. It's interesting that everyone has to do revalidation and general medical counsel make you operate inside, quite for good reason, operate in a severe way you are trained. You know, you basically shouldn't go outside your area of expertise. And yet during the pandemic, many of us have had to step out and take on roles for which our training might be slightly tangential. So, you know, for me doing adult intensive care instead of children wasn't a massive step, although learning about all the drugs that adults take these days they've all got different names and have discovered since I went to medical school was very hard but but that kind of it's quite interesting for people who are not medically or, or, or nursing trained that kind of the idea that you practice within your own area and you shouldn't step outside it without adequate training is really ingrained in us it's really strong and there's you know for very good reason and there's lots of governance and lots of procedures to protect and deliver safe and effective healthcare. And yet during the pandemic, we've suddenly had to wander in a different way, which which was completely understandable and very justified. But I still think for many people that was slightly, as you say, just left you feeling a little bit unprotected might be the wrong term, but a little bit fearful of, you know, possibly missing something, as you say, it's the kind of yeah, I, I, this isn't my world. I'm doing something that's different. And normally, if you're going into something like that, you would be very almost supernumerary. You'd be kind of observing for a time. But this was straight in. 
Yeah. And so I think that's a very different, maybe emotional experience, if no other. And I think that's quite an important thing that's recognised, I think. I think it's that, that thing as well where you... It's been so important to have, I guess, what falls under the the kind of auspices of an unethical work environment, Mm. um, where the trusts, the NHS, our governing bodies did try, they did recognise that this was going to be an issue for staff. Mm. And they did put things in place in order to try and make staff feel slightly more confident that they were protected, that this was extraordinary circumstances and that they would be supported. And I think that was absolutely essential for our staff to to be able to go and do those those kinds of roles and, you know, stretch themselves because, you know, absolutely you can't with the best will in the world, you can't be everywhere at once. And if you've got eight intensive care patients or less, you know, more than one, our normal ratios of one to one. And the nurses who are looking after them are all highly skilled. And there's also within an intensive care, generally a lot of supportive people yeah, around. Yeah. There's a lot of bodies around to help you if things go Absolutely. wrong. Whereas in this situation, that wasn't <clears> the case. And a lot of teams were working in pods, or environments which were not set up to be intensive care areas. Absolutely. Uh, which again left them feeling isolated <clears throat> and and feeling quite vulnerable that should something go wrong, where was the help going to come from? And it was really important for I think the hospitals and you know the senior leadership of both the NHS and within our governing bodies to say, you know, you you will be supported, you will be covered by this. I think we're coming to the end. So thanks to Anne McNiven. I think that was a really interesting discussion. Any last comments, Anne? I think just one thing that I would like to say is that people can't do this on their own. I think I mm. somebody I heard saying that, you know, when they were asked what steps they were taking to feel better, they felt that it was like being thrown into a fire and being asked to do what they were do- doing to, to avoid being burned. It, you know, we need to be supportive of staff. We need to recognise that this is real and we need to be available to help them through it. And there is lots of there, things there to help them, but we need to have a willingness to do it. Brilliant. And I guess in terms of that, you can look at the UK Clinical Ethics Network website, which has a resource about moral distress on there, which came was put up during the pandemic, but certainly applies for people afterwards. And so... There are contact details there and other support is available. Very important to say that. Thank you, everybody, for for listening. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next Great Ormond Street Bioethics podcast. And thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We also have lots of exciting new podcasts coming soon. To find out more, search Gosh Pods wherever you get your podcasts.